Hi, I'm Steve Byerfield. Welcome to the Memoirs of Karate Fighter podcast. I'm here with author Ralph Robb, who wrote Memoirs of a Karate Fighter, and Donald Blaney, who was the original publisher of the book, following a publishing career going back 20 years, as well as being a member of the YMCA team. I just wanted to briefly outline my training background for listeners. I've been training for nearly 50 years, starting with judo age 10, and I'm an old boy of the Suzuki schools of karate at the Hombu, or headquarters dojo, at Manor Place Bars and Marvick House in London. I started training in the children's class at Manor Place with Jumano Ohomzi, age 12, in 1972, showed promise and was allowed to join the adult class age 13. The normal minimum age was 16. At Manor Place, I trained with the following sensei, Shinohara, Kubo, Yamanashi, Hamaguchi, Kobayashi, Maeda, Kitamura, Wakamei, Sakagami, Shiomitsu, Nishimura and Suzuki. Also, I started training with Suzuki Sensei in Battersea Park, age 13. This continued for several years. Later, the Hombu Dojo moved to Marvick House in Fulham, where I trained and taught children and adult beginners with Suzuki Sensei and Sugazawa Sensei. I wasn't really into competition, preferring the freedom of free fighting but did win a few junior competitions and was a member of the UKKW Great Britain squad for Kata and committee and have represented England. I still train daily, so that's my stall set out. Memoirs of a Karate Fighter is in my top five books of all time and I can recommend it to anyone, whether they practice karate or not. Here's Kimberly Rivando Rob with a synopsis. Memoirs of a Karate Fighter by Ralph Robb. Swept along by the kung fu craze of the 1970s, as well as the threat of violence from his older cousins and racist thugs, the teenage Ralph Robb joins one of the most successful and toughest karate schools in Britain. Although he grows up in a comfortable and loving home in middle-class area of Wolverhampton, England, Ralph strikes out for independence and moves to a flat in a high-rise tower block where a gang of National Front-supporting skinheads are in residence. In this coming-of-age tale, Ralph tells it how it was for a young black boy as he gradually matures into adulthood in a town where, back in the 1980s, casual racism and violence were all too common. Together with his cousin and best friend Clinton, he trains diligently and is selected to represent Britain at the Under-21 European Karate Championship. But as the jingoism grows to fever pitch in the throes of the Falklands War, Ralph finds himself conflicted. He wants to compete at an international level, but he does not want to wear the emblem of the Union Jack, which has become, for him, a symbol of intolerance. Ralph does win a silver medal, but his aspirations as an international competitor are curtailed when he has to take on work as a nightclub doorman to earn extra money so he can make a deposit for a home for him and his new family. But this is not his only concern. His training partner, Clinton, begins to exhibit behavior that will eventually require him to be sectioned under the Mental Health Act. After extremely rough justice is meted out to a notorious gang of football hooligans by members of the karate club following an unprovoked attack on one of Ralph's younger cousins and the fights he witnesses at the doors of the various nightclubs, he begins to question the direction in which his life is heading, as well as his own attitudes towards violence. The more he is able to fight, the less inclined he is to do so, and Ralph decides to take another course one which will lead him to higher qualifications as an engineer and a role in management at the factory in which he had served as an apprentice. 
Following several years as Britain's top team, the karate club begins its slide into decline, and members start to fall away. But they do meet up for one last time at the funeral of Clinton following his suicide at the age of 23. The death of his longtime friend brings out another period of introspection, which will lead Ralph to leave karate and Wolverhampton behind for a new life in Canada with his wife and children. Ralph, could you share with us some of your early memories of training at the YMCA dojo? Okay, the, the, the original YMCA was the old building in the city centre of Wolverhampton on a street called Thorny Street. Now, if my memory serves me correctly, right, it was acted as a youth centre where we shared the facilities with the likes of uh, badminton and also five-a-side football. Don't get me wrong, although they played five-a-side football, the uh, hall itself was no near, nowhere near as large as a proper five-a-side pitch. It was a fraction of that size, but it served pretty well. As we ended in the last episode, the initial training at the YM, I found a little bit boring. I always thought I already knew how to make a fist because I've read all the books, read all the magazines, seen people demonstrate to myself how to punch properly. I thought I could kick properly. But as I said before, you don't jump ahead into fighting like I wanted to do without covering the basics. And after a few injuries, such as bruised thumb for not punching properly, snagging it on karate suits or whatever, you soon learn that you've got to complete the basics before you could even move on thinking about fighting. Now, when I first started at the club, I did not have a gi. I used to train in uh, track pants and a t-shirt. I could remember one of my proudest moments when I first could afford to buy my own gi and wearing it into the club. It didn't matter whether that it was paper thin or that it was two sizes too big for me. To me, it represented that finally I'm a part of the Wolverhampton YMCA Karate Club. Now, Don, back in the days, were you supplying karate suits at the time? No, no, no. Uh, I think Eddie used to get them. There was a sports shop in Wolverhampton that used to sell judo geese and the kung fu boom and all that. They started to sell karate geese. Uh, they were in a place opposite where you used to work. And the called Bells, I think its name was. That was about the only place you could get a, a gi from in the town. When I first started training, I, I wore cut-down flared jeans. <laughs> and I, I had those for a long time before uh, Jamal El, El Homsi actually bought me my first gi when I was taking my eight skew grading. Uh, it was a lightweight gi. I can't remember what brand. I think that was a common thing with uh, beginners. You have to go with the cheapest thing because half the time, oh, yes. a lot of students right, didn't turn up after the second or third uh, lesson. They just dropped out. The YMCA was originally connected to the Temple Karate Centre, wasn't it? Well, it was an affiliate because of Eddie's membership with the Temple, which was then a, what was called the British Karate Association Club. Yeah, yeah, the BKA, yeah. Yeah, and the two main karate instructors there at the time were Toro Takamizawa and Peter Suzuki. Okay. And Peter joined uh, the group headed by Tatsuo Suzuki called the UKKF at the time, United Kingdom Karate Do Federation. Uh, and when he left to set up his own dojo, Eddie Cox went with him. Eddie was his top student. Now, all that yeah. at the time was way beyond me because, as I said, I was a kid. I thought it was only interest was to learn how to fight. So that, so the history of the club up to that point, or the politics of the club, I didn't care about. I just wanted to be in the gym, like 90% of the people who were actually at the weigh-in. Now, some of my fondest memories and some of my most painful memories is doing pay work at the uh, gym. We all know the basics, going up and down, dribbling, punching, kicking, proper form, proper stance, etc. 
but the actual pay work was totally uh, indifferent to that to start off with. What do you mean, Sambon Committee? Three uh, steps yes, back. Sambon Committee, yes, but there was also an improvisation of that as well, where a lot of street fighting technique was uh, introduced. Oh, okay, okay, I understand. It, yeah, no, just the general training pay work. Just the general training yeah. itself. It was part of Eddie's uh, teaching, right, to change partners very regularly after a period of time. That way you don't become too familiarised with a certain person who you'd yeah. most favourable want to go with. You'd be put yes. with the people who you found a little bit awkward and uh, it helped to get out of that groove or rut which you may create for, it for yourself. Now, one of the things which I did not like about that was uh, you often paired against people who were clumsy right. or uncoordinated. Now, we used to practice a lot of sweeping, okay. especially in street fighting, the fighting techniques, quickest way to get a guy to the ground to immobilize him. Now, sweeping could come in many forms. You could sweep yep. the back leg, you could sweep the front leg, or you could sweep his front leg with your front leg. I'm sure you're aware of that. Bless the clumsy guys or the guys who didn't care would sweep you whatever way they wanted to, and very often <laughs> your shins would clash. Yes. And yes. I remember going home at night a couple of times after such training, my shin would actually be bleeding because of such techniques. And heaven help you if you were seen to lift that leg before the sweep actually uh, took your leg away to make yeah. it easier for yourself because that was punishable by what was the faith was the death that was to stand with your feet planted and make everybody else sweep you right and i'm right. pretty sure you went through something similar yourself well absolutely i did lots of that training with uh kobayashi sensei mostly mm -hmm. you used to have a, a a wide range of methods of, of dumping you on the ground eddie cox was a, the sort of fella and I, I look back now, after 40 odd years, how enlightened he was, because he wasn't hung up. If you wanted to go train with somebody else, he had no issue with that. So I continued to train with a man called Ken Dix, who was a very hard, old school sort of teacher. He was kind of uh, one of Toro to come as I was senior assistant. So would have trained guys like Eugene Codrington and Clayton Moraine, Freddie Rose. These were kind of well-known guys at the time in Wado circles. So I continued to train with Ken a couple of times a week. I trained with the YN another couple of times a week. And lots of, uh, that lots was the of training. Uh, oh yeah, I, I used to train nine times a week because okay. there'd be some days I'd actually train twice. And the, the, the sessions, I mean, people don't understand the sessions were uh, maybe two hours long. But oh, yeah. something Ralph said about the, um, the clashing of the shins, it reminded me, uh, we weren't allowed any protective padding on. No shin pads, no, no, nothing. Even when we were fighting, there was no such thing as pads on. You know, there was a number of instructors who said, well, if you're wearing hand pads, you'll never learn proper control because you, you, you're not actually touching, you know, your opponent with the strike. And that's what you've got to learn. And I, I can see some sense in that, but it did lead to quite a few injuries. I mean, Ralph will say, I mean, it wasn't uncommon that maybe once a week, at least somebody would end up going to accident and emergency, you know, because we were learning and we were very kind of rough around the edges. We had no idea about competition karate. We were just training to fight. And who were some of your fellow students at that time? People who uh, engraved themselves mainly, most on my mind, just kids of my own age, which right. came from a similar uh, experience as myself. So we were all beginners uh, in the group at the same time, looking up to or idolizing some of the senior grade. Right. Now we used to train uh, before them, go through all our basics, etc., etc. And once we finished training, rather than leaving, we'd sit around the perimeter of the hall and watch the advanced students or the older that's students. Exactly, that's exactly what I used to do. 
Yeah. Now, we used to sit there with our, in amazement at times, at the crispness of their punches, their kata, their basics. It was something to aspire to, okay? But best of all, right, my most favorite moment was to watch the guys spar or, you know, or free fight. At Tamira, it was like heaven, because sat there and think to yourself, one day will I ever be as good as these guys, you know? I could yeah. understand the pain and the uh, dedication needed to get there. And once sometimes I doubted myself whether or not I would have it in getting there or whether or not I'd sustain some type of injury, which I used to see frequently. Did you do gradings? Oh, yeah. How did they go? Okay, the gradings were... My early early gradings were done by Eddie Cox himself. Okay. If my memory serves me right. Later on, they'd be done by one senior Japanese instructor. But right. initially, very early age, yellow belt, orange belt, all that would be done by Eddie. Now, I can't remember whether we actually did them at the gym or we actually went to Ken Dixie's gym to do the gradings. Somewhere Sakigami. That was later. For the, brown, for the brown belts, it'd be Sakigami or Peter Suzuki. Okay, I was talking oh, about sure. the early the, uh, early grade. Or the early grades. Yeah, they were mostly down at the YMCA. When I went there, there was Jerome Atkinson, who would become a world champion. Chester mm-hmm. Morrison, he was brown belt. Uh, Kingsley Harvey, is the other brown belt. So they were the senior grades. Okay. And everybody else was green belt or below. So green belt, it was Ewart Campbell, who would become national light heavyweight champion and a, a British international. Another guy called Byron Crosdale, Ewart's brother. He had a couple of brothers training at the time, Alva and Elroy. There's several other people who have kind of faded. They were very good fighters, actually. But the problem is, is that um, sometimes the harshness of the training, you look back now and you realise it. If we hadn't gone at it like we did, there'd probably have been a lot more people get to at least a downgrade or maybe a, a brown belt level. There were quite a few other guys down there, like one of Eddie's brothers, Neville. God rest his soul, he's gone now. He was a handy guy. He was well known around the place to be able to handle himself. And a few other guys that trained there. Some, some went, later went on to join Sakagami, Hugo Robinson, mm-hmm. Dougie Brown, Charlie Edwards, I think might have started at the YM originally. They, you know, they, they ended up going to Sakagami. He used to run a club in Penn. And then he oh, had yes, a full-time yes, job. So, um, I think it was Union Street in Horsley yeah. Fields. He shared it with the boxing gym. I remember uh, that, place. Hampton, I, I, think so, that, I think that's where I met you, Ralph, at a grading. Okay. We mentioned in episode one. Yeah. Of course, when you got those facilities, the, the facilities, the YMCA, the, the old YMCA were very sparse, very bare. The dojo wasn't very big and right. it kind of cramped our style a little bit. When the YMCA relocated in 1977, we went down to Dunstall Community Centre. The hall was a lot bigger and we could take on a new, a new class, a new membership. And also, it just gave us more space to train. It was quite liberating at the time. In 1977, karate competitions were still a very tough and macho affair. Women and children were precluded from fighting and could only vent their competitiveness in the kata events. But at 15 years old, I was fairly big for my age. And as a result of the bare knuckle fights I'd had, I was confident that I was ready to enter a fairly small local tournament. It was not difficult for me to recall the fear I felt as I stood on the fighting area for the first time. There was a grown man standing across from me and I remembered my knees shaking as I tried to give off an air of confidence by staring at my opponent. 
until his intimidating scowl forced me to avert my eyes toward my toes. I was still looking down when the referee called for the bout to begin with a shout of Hajime. Screaming like a banshee, the brown belt raced toward me and threw a heavy front hand punch, which I evaded, but I failed to see the following two punch combination. There was a thud on my forehead and suddenly I was on my backside listening to the crowd cheering wildly. Through watering eyes, I looked across to Eddie Cox, who just bared his teeth and clenched his fist. I clambered to my feet and made my way back to my line. My opponent stood red-faced and snarling as the referee awarded him a wazari, half point, before the bout resumed. Again he rushed at me, but aware of his tactics, I retreated faster than he advanced and several times I was chased over the boundaries of the fighting area. This continued until the crowd booed and the referee warned me that I was at risk of being disqualified for not fighting. Eddie Cox crouched at the side of the area and called me over. The referee promptly waved him away, but not before he whispered to me, somebody just told me that the guy's a member of the National Front. I returned to my line. My opponent rushed forward to finish me off. Overcoming my fear and the natural inclination to retreat, I pushed forward, determined to meet him halfway. Squeezing my eyes shut, I punched as hard as I could and felt the impact travel down my arm, while simultaneously I heard a sickening impact amid groans from the crowd. I opened my eyes to catch the last of his descent to the floor, blood oozing from his mouth and nose. The referee restrained him as he temporarily lost his composure as well as his senses. He struggled to tear away the blood-soaked rag from under his chin and I swallowed hard at the thought of what he might do to me when the bout restarted. But to my great relief, I was promptly disqualified. Walking from the area, I saw Eddie Cox laughing to himself and I knew then that he had probably lied about the political inclination of my opponent. I had lost, but defeat had tasted strangely sweet at that moment. Okay, so you're training daily and you get to your first competition. Oh boy, yeah. I would have been a green belt at the time. You gotta remember that first and foremost, the YMCA was a club that was all about fighting, teaching fighting techniques. That doesn't mean that we neglected the basics as such, but firsthand, it was all about fighting. So it was very little wonder that our first competition, so many of us were getting disqualified over and over again because we're trying to use uh, street fighting techniques, which basically uh, boils down to one punch, head, done. You know? Yeah, Ipon. Disqualified. So we had to change. No, no, no. It wasn't Ipon in the... Some competitions up further north may have been Ipon, but other competitions, instant disqualifications. So we had to change our pattern slightly, our, our way we were training, the way we deliver certain techniques. For instance, we started to adopt Yurakan, which is a side hand to the, to the side of the head, just so that you're not running onto a full-blown fist. Right. Okay? But that had its positive aspects. For instance, we weren't disqualified as such, but also had this negative connotation as well because certain competitions or federations, especially up north, wouldn't allow or didn't recognize your acting. So consequently, you're hitting your acting first, but your opponent's follow-on, whether it's a punch or a kick, would hit you afterwards, but they would recognize a kick and not the Iraqan. Yes. Now, yes. that again, right, we had to change slightly to, to increase the force of the Iraqan a lot harder so that you certainly knew that they'd been hit and there's no ambiguity whether or not the technique actually landed. Again, at that period of time, there was this thing which was sneaking into karate where people were diving. 
see, we were a bit older than Ralph. So we before Ralph were competing, obviously, the YMCA had a team. I, I suppose, too, for those who don't do karate, don't know karate competitions, there was this idea from Japan of sundame about pulling techniques. Yeah. Uh, and there, there'd been a debate in the 20s and the 30s regarding how do you, how do you bring a competition element into karate? Should it be with protective gear and where you just pull and punch and kick with full power? Or do you do away with the need for uh, protective armor and somehow deliver the blows, but without full force? And I think this is what, say, some people who do karate today don't understand. The karate we did was not non-contact. It was controlled contact. Nothing used to frustrate yeah. me more than in a competition, a guy score against you, and you ain't got a clue what the guy had hit you with. Absolutely. At least with those competitions up north, if the guy scored, you could feel the split lip where he is actually hit you. The, the other thing in the, the 70s, you could go to competitions and there'd just be one category and there was no age no grade it was white from white belt to black belt all stars and and this the sheer number of people entering i think that's what people don't understand i once fought in a competition and i was only green belt it was all grades fighting and it was only a west midlands competition area competition i had eight fights 248 competitors at the day and at the shoulder can karate international i had eight fights I think when we first started to enter, there was this idea that there was a certain pretty about us entering their competitions. And when we first entered, as Ralph says, Yurikan wasn't scored. It, we, Even now, Yurikan isn't scored so easily. Yeah, you'd hit somebody with a, a roundhouse kick and because we delivered it with the top of the foot rather than the ball of the foot, they'd say no score. I mean, I remember the late Bob Poynton pulling me up over that and I was really getting frustrated and so I just started to throw punches and I ended up getting disqualified I mean what was the point and speaking of Bob Poynton a very nice man God rest him died not long ago but he was a top shorty can man and he used to referee at Billy Higgins's tournament in, in Wigan and it was 1980 and I was fighting in the team I was fighting number one and uh, I think we got drawn against Steve Cattle's team. Very good team, Kirkdale, I believe. And it was a right ding-dong match. This man nearly knocked me out with the first punch he threw. My knee sagged. I pulled myself together. I threw a punch, which, unfortunately, he uh, cracked his nose. And he, got, he went on like this. And uh, he, he ended up, this man, blowing a tooth out of my head. <laughs> and uh, Bob pointed, looking over, and said, oh, that was a great technique. I really don't want to disqualify him. He says, was that tooth like that before? And somebody, somebody actually brings him over the tooth that had flown out into the crowd and say, no, here it is. <laughs> so he says, oh, it's a shame a fire like that has to end this way. <laughs> you know? And finally reaching Glasgow, we caught a taxi to the hotel that had been mentioned in our letters. As the driver chatted incessantly in an accent that none of us understood, the three of us took in the sights. They did not leave us greatly impressed as the grey and overcast sky made the surroundings appear grim and forbidding. Once at the hotel, we were allocated rooms and given a sheaf of papers that included a timetable, directions to the stadium and a list of prohibited activities. One which stuck in my mind was the rule against leaving the hotel after 5pm, but the list of restrictions only served to remind me that this was no holiday excursion. Once we had deposited our bags in our rooms, we went downstairs where the Scottish karate officials gave us a welcome that contrasted with the cold and drab afternoon. We had headed north thinking of ourselves as representing the YMCA, but as the evening wore on, it was obvious that our hosts saw us as part of the people they referred to as the old enemy. 
I had been sent an England badge that was to be sewn onto the jacket of my karate gear with the letter confirming my selection. But even though I had thrown mine into the rubbish bin, I was still identified as a member of an invading force that the Scots told us they would take great pleasure in repelling. As a few more drinks were downed by our hosts, it became plain to me that the talk about being part of the enemy was not all light-hearted banter. There was real venom behind the words. I was feeling the first stirring of a minor identity crisis. While I had been born in England, I had never considered myself, nor ever felt regarded as English. Neither Clinton nor Leslie seemed to be troubled in the same way. To them, our selection for the England Under-21 team was simply a means of enhancing our competition skills and provided an opportunity to compete at the European Junior Championships. They were confident too that the Scots would not be much opposition, but I was not so sure. Scotland, given its small population, had always been disproportionately successful at karate. Jerome Atkinson had often talked with great respect about his Scottish teammates in the British squad, such as the world champions Jim Collins and Pat Mackay. While he had beaten Amish Adam, who had been a member of the team that had won the world championships in 1975, to win his first European Wadaru title, Jerome had often mentioned how hard a fight the much smaller Scotsman had given him, and I had overheard Jerome often sing the praises of a fighter named David Quarter, and Don Blaney recounted how the 5'8 Scot had downed a German opponent who was at least a foot taller, with one of the best techniques he had ever seen performed on a competition mat. The following day, as we headed off to the competition venue, I stepped out of the hotel and a very large pigeon dropping splashed on my head. It proved to be a source of great amusement for Clinton and Leslie all the way to the stadium, but I was just hoping that it was not a bad omen. As part of the standard procedure, we reported to a doctor for a very basic medical to make sure that we were fit enough to fight. My heart rate was deemed to be very slow, but that was not out of the ordinary for someone so very fit. Leslie also passed with flying colours, but there was a problem with Clinton. Shortly after his blood pressure was checked, he began to complain of pains in his chest and lay down on the floor. The doctor examined him but could not find anything wrong. However, after a brief consultation with the competition's officials, Clinton was told that he would not be allowed to fight and that he should get a thorough medical checkup once he was back home. The news that Clinton was not competing unsettled me. Leslie dismissed the episode as a matter of Clinton losing his nerve, but I knew that could not be the case. Physically, at least, Clinton was about as fearless as any person I had ever met, to the point he had at time displayed a reckless disregard for his own safety. And like the rest of the family, he had that certain something that made him a natural fighter. He was still on my mind as I prepared for my first fight. Roared on by a partisan crowd, the Scottish competitors lined up at the edge of the map. As the subsequent bouts would prove, point scoring was only a secondary consideration for them the first was to dish out as much punishment to the Sassanax as the rules would allow. Although it was not without its uncomfortable moments, I reveled in the hostile atmosphere the spectators had created and managed to win all my bouts. But that could not be said for all my teammates, and I left the stadium with what was for me the rare feeling of being part of a losing side. I was also a little bruised. My first taste of international competition had been a painful reminder of how much more training I needed in my preparation for the European Championships. Visit our website at www.ralphrob.com. If you have questions or comments, email us at ralph at ralphrob.com. 
I'm Kimberly Rivando Rob, and I am signing up. Signing up. Signing up. Signing up.